Jesus, you are worthy. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of all glory. Today, oh God, I pray that this service, this message, the worship that we've sung will be glorifying unto you. Oh God, in the midst of these times of trouble, would you give us a message of hope? Would you give us a message of peace? Would you speak to us from your word this morning as we open it up and we look a little deeper and we say, okay, what's going on here? What's our relationship between us and God? God, who are you? We want to inch a bit closer, Lord. We know the promises that are in the scripture. We know the promises that are from your son, Jesus. We stand in those promises today against fear, against panic. And we claim, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. So we give you praise this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, folks, everyone online. Thank you, worship team, for that, by the way. That was fantastic. Um, we're glad you're with us. This is, this is new for all of us. <laughs> so you may be feeling a little weird. Be rest assured, we're feeling a little weird. Um, but we are we're certain that, that God is here amongst us. He's, he's there with you, right? Um, we're two or more gathered. We know that, that Jesus, the Spirit of God, he is there with you. And that's what we're resting in today. Um, but... We're going to continue on. Uh, we're, we're not stopping for anything. We're not stopping for, for no virus. We're going to continue preaching through uh, what Kevin started last week. So the, the soul care uh, um, series as we are leading up to soul care. And, and of course, hopefully that will continue uh, on in, in, in a few weeks from now, or a few months from now. Um, however, Kevin spoke last week about repentance and, and you know what that means today. We're going to talk about generational sin. Um, uh, so, you know, we're just going to plow forward. But I, I want to note that before we begin, there will be a few instances in this sermon where I give pause for a moment. And I give for the few of you here in front of me in the sanctuary and for those of you at home uh, an opportunity to reflect um, the reason for this is because, I'll, I'll be totally honest with you, I approached this sermon uh, with a mindset that I wanted to be as scholarly as possible, but that was not in God's plans, apparently. Uh, that's not what he spoke to me this week. What I feel that this sermon really is, is kind of like an extended devotion. Um, and so I figured it would be beneficial to all of us if we gave pause a few moments this morning, even just for a few seconds, as I mentioned a few things, to reflect. And so today we're talking about generational sin. And as I said, this is part of the, the whole soul care, <clears throat> the whole soul care conference. Uh, as we're, we're looking forward to that. So we want to talk through a few of the things that will be coming up. Okay. And so generational sin is, is one of these. And, and I got to be honest, when I approached this topic, like I felt a little strange about this because part of it was because I want to be open and honest with you here in front of me and those of you at home, right, about what that looks like for me and, and how sin has, has uh, affected my family as well. But part of me is like, well, I have to honor my mother and father. And mom and dad, if you're listening, you were fantastic parents. I'll start with that. Um, 
I couldn't have asked for, for better parents, and I, and I love you. Um, and I, I'm sure that for all of us here, as we talk about this, this thing, generational sin, you know, the sins of our parents kind of continuing on as a pattern in our families, um, you hopefully can recognize what that pattern may look like. And the idea for us here today so uh, is to kind of come to the end and hopefully identify what that pattern looks like, and we want to break that pattern. We want to break that sin pattern here today. Okay, so first we're, we're going to talk about really what is generational sin? Like what is this thing that we're talking about? Uh, where does it come from? What does the Bible have to say about it? Okay. And then we'll talk about how can you deal with generational sin? It's important, of course, to look towards Christ as the hope in generational sin, the one who breaks generational sin. And that's where we'll finish off. So first off, I mean, what, what is sin? Right? Like this, is, this is a word that you probably hear a thousand and one times in any given Bible message because, of course, the gospel is centered around this idea that God gave his only son to be sacrificed on the cross, that he would defeat sin for the rest of human history, right? And so we use this word sin all the time. So what is it? Well, simply it's this. As the Bible kind of describes, sin is missing the mark. Well, what is the mark? The mark is God's standard, right? The way he calls us to live. Um, really, you could say at the end of the day, the standard is God himself. He is the standard for everyone, for all of us, for, for uh, anywhere in the universe. There's no standard that is above God's. And so anything that, that, that misses his mark, that falls beneath his glory, as we read in, in the book of Romans, right? It says, all of us have fallen short of God's glory, Therefore, that is what sin is. So any action that you take that misses God's glory, what his standard is, that is described as sin. And of course, you can talk about there's a difference between willful sin and temptation, and there's all those nuances in there. We're not going to go there today. But just know that sin is effectively missing God's standard, right? So therefore, when we talk about generational sin... We're talking about sin patterns through our families that persist over time. From your great-grandparents all the way down through your children. So let's go to a few uh, portions in the text that talk about generational sin. So I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. And we're going to jump we're going to jump around a little bit at the beginning here. So if you can't keep up, that, that's okay. I'll give you the reference, but... I'm going to make my way through a few passages here. So first off in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, okay? It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments, Okay? Next is Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6. It says this, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means 
clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Okay. The next in this cluster, the last in this cluster that we'll talk about is Leviticus chapter 26 in verse 39. It's just one sentence long. It says this, because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. Okay, so these are some strong words, isn't it? But there's some other texts that are really crucial for us understanding what generational sin is. Because that first cluster, so Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 34, and Leviticus 26, they're talking about this fact that, okay, the sins of the father will be passed on for multiple generations. Okay, that, that is, in, in essence, a promise of God. This will happen. Okay, this will happen. So that's the first cluster. The second, though, is a little bit different. We're going to pick up in Deuteronomy 24, and there's, there's three that I'll, I'll read out again, okay? And this is crucial for us understanding and sorting out what does the Bible mean when we're talking about generational sin. So Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16 says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Strong words again, but keep in mind the distinction. Likewise, in 2 Kings, okay, so we're jumping ways forward a little bit here. Only two more. 2 Kings 14 and verse 6. It says, but he did not put to death the children of the murderers, according to what his book written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sins. So here is an example in Second Kings where uh, there, there's these murderers and the children are not held accountable to the, the actions of their fathers, okay? And lastly, in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 18, in verse 20, it says, Ezekiel says this, The soul who sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Okay, so there we have it. Those are the two clusters of biblical texts that they pertain greatly to this idea of generational sin. Both inspired by God, both inspired by the Holy Spirit, written at, at different times from each other in, in some sense, maybe different authors, that type of thing, okay, but both coming from the Holy Spirit, talking about generational sin. So, okay, what can we learn? What can we learn about generational sin? Well, here are a few observations, and we're going to be coming up to one of those reflection times soon. But gener generational sin is simply this, the sins of the Father are passed on to the Son via a manner of which we're not told. It's a bit of a mystery how this happens. However, we do know that if the Father sins in a certain way, so that can be, you know, violence or, or lust or greed or envy, whatever it may be, that the Son, the sons and daughters, are likely to commit similar sin. 
and those will be passed on for generations and generations and generations. And we see, I mean, it really, let me say this, it, it's, it's no uh, surprise to me at all. Like when I was kind of studying this, like some of this didn't come as a surprise because I know that as humans, we love patterns. <laughs> we hate change. We love routine in, in many ways. And uh, we know, especially as children, like they're impressionable. What your parents do, you'll pick up on really quickly. I must say, I'm not a parent, but I see around me, and I am a youth pastor, by the way, and I, and I see, for better or for worse, in youth ministry, patterns from parents being passed on to their children, right? And so as humans, I mean, we, we, love, we love patterns. This is, just, this is just a reality of the human experience. And for me, personally, this came out right? This, this generational sin pattern came out in struggling to communicate, right? This is the biggest way that I saw this, right? My parents, fantastic people, not always strong communicators, okay? When hard things would happen, sometimes we wouldn't deal with it in the healthiest of manners, conflict, that kind of stuff. And I didn't notice until much later in my life, especially when I started to date my now wife, Erica, and things would come up and I would want to run away. Tough conversations that needed to, to happen where, where I needed to face the light maybe about something that was very important, about something that would have been healthy for me to work through. I would run the other direction. I would, you know, bottle things Bottle things up, push it down, deep, deep down. The further down, the better, right? Struggle to, and, and maybe for, for many men, struggle to connect with your emotions. Struggle to understand what it is you're feeling, right? That was a, a big problem for me. I struggled with a lot of pride, struggled with a lot of anger, especially around hockey. For those of you that, that know me, maybe some of you listening online, you don't know me so well, but... For those of you that, that are, attend our church, I mean, you know that uh, my pastor used to be a hockey player, right? My entire life. And when I decided to leave hockey that route and do ministry, go to Bible school, I struggled in my soul of souls deeply about that decision for a long time. And I would wake up mornings just so angry at myself. I, I remember I would wake up in the top bunk in my dorm room at Ambrose University, staring at the ceiling, knowing that I have to go to class, wondering what am I doing with my life? Why would I ever give up a dream that I had like that? I was so angry at myself. I was so prideful to those around me because I didn't know how to work through and communicate and open myself up to other people that I could resolve these things within myself, right? And that trickled into other things. I hurt people around me. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, a friend of mine on, online the other night who, uh, he, he is a, he's a pastor now, um, and we went to Bible school together, and we were just talking about, you know, a few years back, and I said, man, 
I was just such a jerk back then, wasn't I? Uh, And I didn't use the word jerk. And he paused for a moment, and he just said, yeah. Because I didn't, I, and, I, and I remember those times well, because I, I, I didn't know how to open up. I didn't know how to communicate. I didn't know how to resolve conflict. And that opened up other doors into other sins, anger and pride and the such, right? But if we, were, we remember in the second cluster of the text that we talked about, it is that, yes, generational sin is a thing. These patterns exist, and they exist in my family as well as your family. And it is important for us to take pause for a moment and reflect and say, okay, what sin patterns may exist in my family? Because the first step to breaking them is identifying them and calling them out by name, right? So at the very least, you can bring it before the cross and lay it there and say, Jesus, take this away from me. Take this away from my family. It took me years, years to do that, right? And I I was a Bible student getting ready to be a pastor. I had no idea that I needed to break these patterns, to identify and break these patterns of sin in my family. Right? So first, I I just want to pray quickly. And during my prayer, I want all of you at home uh, for those of you here, I would love if you join with me in prayer, but also to reflect. Reflect on your families. Reflect on your situation, your, your relationships with uh, your spouse, your, your parents, your kids. What sin patterns exist. And so I'm just going to pray and I, I invite you to do a bit of reflection for a few seconds here. Oh God, call to our minds these patterns of sin. Oh Lord, help us see clearly the ways in which we have wronged you, the ways in which we have wronged others, and we continue to do so. That may have been modeled for us by our parents, by grandparents, aunts and uncles, whatever it may be. Oh Holy Spirit, show us a clear picture in how we can begin to identify the sin pattern and also break it in the name of Jesus. Speak clearly to us, O God, for we seek to be a new generation of people that is released from patterns of sin and lives rather in patterns of holiness. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope that you were able to identify something or or think of something. And if not, I encourage you, after, after the service, after this sermon, don't stop. Like, don't let this be the end of things. Continue on in identification. You know, because as I said, like, as humans, we are pattern-loving creatures. I think it's something that is built into us. We see that even socioeconomically, patterns exist from generation to, to generation. You know, things like generational poverty that we fight against in in this church even. 
that exists on a scale, a grand scale, of course, across the globe, but as well here in North America. Now, of course, is, is being in poverty a sin? Well, no, of course not. Your socioeconomic status has nothing to do with your holiness. Your financial situation has nothing to do, is no way indicative of your spiritual health, okay? And in fact, if you're ever listening to somebody and they, t and they tell you or they suggest that uh, that may be the case, I suggest you to run away from them or turn off your TV or turn off your cell phone uh, because that person is unbiblical. However, we know that generational poverty is just a good example of something that is very negative but can persist over generation to generation, right? And it demonstrates to us in a very tangible way that patterns exist in families, okay, right? I, I, I read an abstract from uh, the National Center for Children in Poverty research essay uh, written by Robert Wagmiller and Robert Adelman, and they just said this, uh, children who grow up in poverty, they are more likely to experience multiple family transitions, to move more frequently, to change schools more frequently. The, ch the schools they, they attend are less well-funded, and the neighborhoods they live in are more disadvantaged. The parents of, of these children have fewer resources to invest in, in their kids, and as a consequence, their homes have fewer cognitively stimulating materials, and their parents invest significantly less in their education as such. Of course, the stress of living in, in poverty and struggling to meet daily needs can also impair parenting. And so socioeconomic deprivation during childhood and adolescence can have a lasting effect on individuals making it difficult for children who grow up in low-income families to escape poverty when they become adults, right? So it's like this compounding effect that we see in, in generational poverty. You grow up in poverty, and therefore you have a much less higher chance of being exposed to you know, better opportunities, to uh, cognitively stimulating materials when you're young, less investment in your education. All of these types of things are are driving you to grow up and also live in poverty, to have children that repeat the same. And, and as I reflected on this, I thought, man, like sin patterns themselves, okay, so now we're talking about sin, which is separate from poverty, right? They are very similar. Oh, good thing no one's in the spit zone there. Okay, it's because of this. The sins of the father are passed on to the son, right? So children growing up in homes, let, let's, let's, take, um, let's take anger uh, as an example. If you grow up in a home where your father is constantly angry, you are much more likely to be constantly angry. If you grow up in a home where your father or mother demonstrates to you that it's okay to be unfaithful to the, your spouse, I mean, that'll drive you to do one or two things. Either A, vow never to be like them, or B, to follow in a sin pattern, right? Because these things are modeled for you, right? They are presented to you as an example. I mean, for most children, when you grow up, your primary, your primary human interaction is with your parents or siblings, right? It's within the nuclear family unit. And so, as parents, 
You must understand that you are modeling something so important for your kids. You're either modeling sin pattern or you're modeling holiness. Really, there's no in-between. Okay? Very black or white. But what I love about the, these cl- the cluster of scriptures that we read is, is this very important stipulation one, that we can, we can conclude that family patterns exist, and therefore it's no surprise that family sin patterns likewise exist. But two, that if you have grown up in a household where your father is angry and abusive, you have, uh, you have all accountability, right? Meaning, you aren't off the hook because you are also angry and abusive. You can't blame anything on your father. You can't blame anything on your mother. Everybody is accountable for their own sin. You cannot blame your sin on anyone else. And I really want to drive that home because we're talking about the sins of our parents and the sins of our grandparents and how easy is it church? How easy is it people at home to point to those around you and say, yeah, I see the sin. Yeah, wow, it's so clear, right? It's not as easy to see your own sin sometimes, is it? So it's important to recognize, like the Bible is clear about this, the father will not be put to death because of the sins of his children, and likewise children will not be put to death, will not be held accountable for the sins of their father. It's very important. No innocent son or daughter has ever been punished because of somebody else's sin. Rather, we're all accountable. And so I think number two is, you know, okay, so we identify sin patterns. Okay, so you say, yes, I see the pattern. But second is identifying how are sin patterns prevalent in me? Not just in my family surrounding me, but how do I uh, help them continue? Because we don't just want to identify, but we want to snap them. We want to break them. And in order to break sin patterns I hope you never say, well, my children will be better than me. It's like, no, you be better. You be better. You identify the pattern. You start uh, living in holiness, starting the pattern of holiness for your children, for your family around you, right? So I'm going to say another prayer. The first of which was for, as I said, identifying the sin pattern. Now, I want you to identify the sin pattern continuing within yourself. How are you contributing to the advancement of this pattern in your family? So I hope that you can identify that. So, so again, join, join with me in prayer as we call this out in ourselves. Father, we come to you once again in prayer. We ask you, Lord, not only to show us in our minds how our families have uh, perpetuated sin to us, but how we have latched on to that as well. Us as individuals, where is our accountability in this, God? Speak to us, O Lord. We want to be holy people, breaking the sin patterns in our family, living for holiness. So God, bring to light our iniquity, not of anyone else, not the speck in someone else's eye, but Lord, show us the plank 
that is lodged in our own eye. That we might be able to break the sin pattern, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. And so now I, I hope that we've come to a point in, in, in the message where you, you can identify, okay, I, I see these patterns. You know, I see how in myself I have helped, you know, you know this thing continue on. Or maybe I've, I have not been a great role model to the people around me, to my kids or to cousins or who, whoever it is. But I want to give you a few ways in which we can help deal with the sin pattern. Because again, it's not just about identification, but actually breaking it. Breaking it. And so I'm going to talk through a few of them. The first of which is this, get help. Right? What is beautiful about the Christian experience, living a Christian life, is that you don't have to do it alone. Right? Right now, I get, I get it. We're in a weird time. Okay? I'm talking to like 12 people right now and a camera. Okay? It's a little strange right now. But look, you're only two seats away from one another. You can still lean over and pray for one another. You can still encourage one another, right? For those of you at home, maybe you're in small groups. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, you're with your spouse or your kids or whoever, right? Pray for one another. Lean on one another. In fact, I would say in this time that is so uncertain, we should be leaning on one another even more. We should be leaning on God and bringing him into our homes even more, Right? You know, in, in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, it says this beautiful thing about confession. Okay, it says, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's power in confession. So yes, I asked you to pray individually. But man, like pray with someone else. Confess to someone else who you trust, who isn't going to use it as a club against you, right? Because if we confess our sins to God and one another, it's suddenly brought into the light. And what I said earlier, when I, I was shoving things down deep inside of me, when I would like word vomited them out, it felt so freeing. It felt like they didn't have control over me anymore. The pride and the anger, it's like it could just seep out of me right? Speaking something out loud in confession to a brother or sister in Christ, it's like one of the most therapeutic things that you can do for your soul. And this is soul care, of course. And the fact of the matter is that we carry burdens onto our souls, right? It's like we just lump them on, like you're slinging a backpack over your shoulder, and you carry that burden with you for years. And, and that can be burdens of your own sin. That can be burdens of, of stress and anxiety. That can be family generational sin patterns that, that you have slung onto yourself. And so long as it's in the dark, it's going to stay like that. But rather, God, you know, through, through the letter in 1 John here, it says, like, confess it. Confess it to God. Confess it to one another. Bring it into the light. Take this weight off of your shoulders. So that's number one. That is number one. You know, God's promise is that sins will be extinguished by Christ, right? In the Gospel of John, the very first thing that we talk about is this word, the Logos, from God. Who is this Logos? Well, it's Jesus. 
And it says that the darkness cannot overcome the Logos, cannot overcome Jesus. And so, bring your worries to him. Bring your worries to brothers and sisters in Christ who will speak wisdom of the Holy Spirit to you. Break the pattern of, you know, the pattern, it's like this. It's like you commit the sin, then you feel bad about it, then you ask God for forgiveness, and then a period of time passes where you kind of forget about that emotional charge that you had, and suddenly temptation comes back. And then you commit the sin, and then you feel bad about it, and then you confess it to God, right? You, you see the idea here. That is how sin patterns persist. And look, it's not that confessing to God is just this emotional charge that you can have, but there is two sides of the same coin here. It's confess to God, but also confess to your fellow believers that you can have accountability. Because yes, you confess to God and he forgives you. And he lovingly welcomes you back into the fold and, and picks you up and gives you a big hug. Yes, that's true. But when you go out, into life, and you, face, and you face the stress, you face the anxiety, you face the hard economic times that we're having right now. I mean, it's easy to forget those experiences. It's easy to forget the words that God calls out in you. But one of the most, for, for me as well, you know, one of the most powerful things is just having a group of people that you trust that you can talk to, right? That, that same pastor that I was telling you about, that, that uh, I was talking to a few nights ago. He, he is a guy who I can go to and say, dude, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I did at work. This is the mistake I made. This is, this is the sin, you know, uh, that, this is the sin pattern that I'm seeing. Uh, whatever it is, right? I can just kind of plop it out there. Even though we're just talking through com a computer screen, right? He lives in Calgary. It's okay. That's someone who, who can encourage me, hold me up. Same with my wife right? Same thing. Can, you can go to your spouse and confess to them. Did you know that? Right? Sometimes we hold our spouses at arm's length like this, and, and you try to make it seem like you're still all put together, like you have to impress them or something. Like, Erica, I don't have to impress you. You already married me. It's, it's okay to just, <laughs> it's okay to just be you. With all, the, with all the grossness that can come along with that, right? It's okay. Because really, at the, at the end of the day, that is, that is where the breaking of the sin pattern, that is going to help, like, huge. When you can have someone who you trust standing beside you, holding you up and calling you to accountability. Okay, the second thing is this. So the first one, get help, confess to other people, you know, have a support group around you, whatever it is. The second is this, replace sin patterns, okay? So, so now we're going to say you've come to the point where you've identified and you're actively working to break sin patterns in your family, right, in yourself. So now you have to replace it with something, right? We're humans, we love patterns. If you don't replace it with something good, you'll probably go back to that pattern, Replace a sin pattern with spiritual discipline, with spiritual patterns, right? In, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul instructs Timothy by saying, train yourself to be godly. 
And Paul goes on to say, uh, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come, right? So after confession, after finding support around you, finding, finding spiritual practices that discipline yourself is very important, right? Paul says it himself. The idea is this, as I said, humans love patterns. We love iterations, We love iterations of patterns. Sin patterns are example of patterns that we do not want to hold on to, of course. So when we break those patterns, replace them with something such as a spiritual discipline, that's where they come in. And there's there's plenty that you can choose from, by the way, right? So in in 1 Timothy chapter 4, actually when I read this, I should say, it really reminded me of my time when I was playing hockey. When I was training my body to do something, to perform a specific task, my whole life, and maybe for those of you at home, like if you've ever been a high-level high athlete or anything like that where you have to train your body or, or even doing academics or learning a new skill, like you are training yourself to perform a certain task at a high level. You know, so for me, it was, it was skating, stick handling, shooting, passing, vision, all all of that type of stuff, all encompasses a good hockey player, right? That's the idea. And so you train those things. You know, it's not just what's on ice, though. You work out off the ice, right? You, You perform specific tasks so you tear down your muscles so that they rebuild again stronger. Or eating a healthy diet, okay? I, I've never been known for this one, I'll be honest, all right? But when I was a hockey player, you had to eat a healthy diet or else your body would not perform. Even if you, even if you were in the gym, you know, 24 hours a day, wouldn't matter. You had to put good stuff into your body. The same thing is with a spiritual life. If you want to break sin patterns, you need to replace it with something good, like a spiritual pattern. So things like prayer, right? Of course, prayer. Of course, reading the scripture. Those are the, the two big ones, the two obvious things. But what are some other things? Well, our church, we practice fasting from time to time, right? We have our, our fast and prayer weekends. Practice submitting to God on a daily basis. Wake up every single morning, and the first thing that goes through your mind is, Lord, I submit the rest of this day to you. Live out of that. Practice worshiping more. I mean, yes, like, oh, we are thankful that we have a fantastic worship team. We are thankful that we have awesome sound guys, right? That can bring worship to you on Sunday mornings. But I'll tell you what, put on worship music when you are doing a menial task. Surround yourself in it, right? Practice these spiritual disciplines on a continual basis. And another one that I wrote down that is, again, a little different right now is just practicing community, right? Yeah, church is going to look a little different for a while. I'm sure you guys have figured that out already. Community is going to look a little different for a while. But what's amazing is we have live streams. We have online resources. You can call somebody up. You can text somebody. You can use Zoom to connect with your small group, right? Make sure you are still embedded in community. Practice spiritual disciplines. Train your body after you've broken the sin patterns to replace with holy patterns. Okay, so 
the last bit of the sermon that, uh, that I'd like to discuss is, is, is this. A few days ago, I wrote uh, a blog post that I put on our, uh, one of our fa- Facebook pages online. And as I was kind of finishing up this, this sermon, I came to this point and I thought, man, like, what, what, can, I, what can I add to this thing? It's like, you know, you know when you, you're, you're cooking or you eat something and you're just like, man, it just needs a little something else. That's how I was feeling about this sermon. And after I wrote this blog post, I, I read it back and I thought, wow, I would love to share this again on Sunday morning because this is so applicable to breaking sin pattern. And it's simply this, yes, get help, right? Confess to others around you. Practice spiritual disciplines. But the final thing is this, rest in the triumph of Jesus, right? Rest in the triumph of Jesus. And so I just wanna, I want to um, refer to, to this blog post that I wrote. Um, I, won't, I won't read out the whole thing, but I, I wanna give you the, the, the spark notes here. Because this, in my opinion, this trumps all. This trumps all. So Jesus is triumphant, folks. Jesus is triumphant even over this crazy world we live in. (laughs) Jesus is triumphant over COVID-19. Jesus is triumphant over your sin patterns. And so I wanted to talk about, in this blog post, and to you, I want to talk about, what does that mean? So I'm sure many of you have read the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We call that now Palm Sunday, right? Great. It comes a bit before, before Easter. And in the biblical text, this is very, very soon, of course, uh, to the passion of Christ, to his uh, arrest, his, his, uh, his torture, his execution, and his resurrection. And what's really interesting, and, and for me, uh, again, for those of you that, that know me, you'll know, like, I, I love the history, uh, I love the literary work that rests behind the scriptures. It's just there beneath the surface, and there's so much that you can learn, and there's so many beautiful pictures that you can uncover. And so I want to talk to you about one of those things that pertains to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So again, I'll, I'll give you the spark notes because I could just go on about this. But what was the empire that ruled during Jesus' time? Rome, yeah. A bunch of you guys are mouthing it. I, I know you knew at home. I know you did. Yeah, so Rome was this grand, great empire that spanned the entire Mediterranean at the time of Christ, right? In fact, at this time, you you could say very close to the time of Jesus, Rome was at its peak of power and influence across the West and even into the East at this point, in Syria, um, Israel, and such. And one thing we should know about Romans is that they loved conquering things. Like, they loved taking your land from you, right? And they, and, and they celebrated taking your land like you've never seen before. In fact, if a general conquered new territory for Rome, he, he could return to Rome and have this amazing party that was called a triumph. 
And we see this a few times in, in, in the historical record. There was a handful of triumphs in Rome. Of course, uh, Julius Caesar had the most triumphs at four, I believe. No one ever had more than four. Uh, so he, he conquered Gaul, which is now modern-day France, uh, North Africa, uh, Spania, and can't remember the last one. That's okay. So each time he came back, uh, Asia Minor, was it? Asia Minor, thank you. Um, each time he came back to Rome after, uh, uh, after conquering a new territory, they would celebrate. And politicians and generals at this time, they were kind of two, two separate classes of people. You couldn't be one and the same until after Caesar's death anyway. And so the general would return to Rome, and he was not allowed into the city because you weren't allowed to bring weapons or soldiers into the city. In fact, if a general entered the city of Rome through what we call the, the primarium, he would lose his command, and he would be basically stripped of his military power, um, which was to just preserve basically the sanctity of Rome. Okay, so the general would come back and he would cry out and call to the Senate and request entry into the city under triumph. And if the Senate gave him entry, then there would be a plan for this massive parade. As I say in the blog, it's like putting Times Square, Times Square at New Year's Eve to shame. It's like a party to end all parties, right? It was an honor like which you could never receive anywhere else. In fact, the highest political status that you could have at the time in Rome was that of consul. Basically, you're the prime minister, and to relate it, right? But a general returning to Rome in triumph, the honor was much greater than that of the consul prime minister. It was like something you've never seen before. And the party, I mean, you could only imagine the gold and, and, and the celebration and the music and I'm sure the wine, right? Everything that goes along with it. And they would, they would basically, the, the city of Rome would just party for days celebrating this military victory. And so, of course, we ask ourselves, how does this pertain to Jesus entering Jerusalem? Well, the first clue is that it's called Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. That should give you a hint right away. And of course, we know that the, the authors of the Gospels, well, who are they living under? The Roman Empire. So reading this, you are supposed to read Jesus entering Jerusalem like Julius Caesar coming back to Rome and being celebrated by the entire nation with a party like you've never seen before. It's this picture of grandeur. It's a picture of majesty like you can never comprehend. But of course, to an ancient reader, they would understand this right away. To us, it takes a bit of digging, right? It's this beautiful picture. And so in some sense, the, the gospel authors, they are painting Jesus like a better general, like a better emperor. He is the triumphator. He is the imperator to end all imperators, right? That's the idea. It's this amazing picture. I just, I love it so much. This picture of Jesus triumphantly entering Jerusalem, right? It's almost this foreshadowing, isn't it? Jesus being celebrated entering this city. Of course, it wasn't Rome. It was Jerusalem. 
And the people are laying down these branches and they're laying down their cloaks and they're crying out to God. They're celebrating and praising, right? It's this amazing picture. And even the Pharisees say, are, are trying to get all this to stop. And they're like, stop, stop, stop. And Jesus says, if you get them to stop, even the stones will sing out, right? It's because the picture is supposed to be, it's not just the people. It's not just the city crying out to Jesus, triumphant, triumphant. But rather, it is also creation crying out. Jesus, you are triumphant. Way more than any Roman general could be, right? That's the picture. It's amazing. And so how that kind of pertains to us is that, yes, we identify sin patterns. Yes, we, we identify how we uh, continue them. We identify how, how uh, you know, what they look like and, and how we can kind of begin to break them. But at the end of the day, the crux is this, is that if you want to break sin patterns in your family, it's not just community, it's not just calling them out in yourself, but you have to rest in the triumph of, of Christ, right? That's what it is. Resting in the triumph of Jesus. Because Jesus, you know, again, back to the illusion, a Roman general conquered land and was hailed triumphant. Jesus conquered sin and death and is hailed triumphant. Right? That's the idea here. And so I want to do one last prayer before we conclude. Okay? And, and again, I invite you at home to... Uh, pray along with us. And it's simply this. I encourage you to reflect on what I just said. Is Jesus triumphant over your sin? Are you going to let Jesus help you break these sin patterns and replace them with spiritual discipline? So after this prayer will be done, worship team, you guys can come back up. <clears throat> Oh God, we reflect on ourselves, on our sin, on our stress, our fear, our, our anxiety, Lord. Oh God, we, we come to the cross and we just, we hand it over to you. In our minds, Lord, we're, we're bowing before the cross. We're bowing before, not only the cross, the, the empty tomb and the triumphant Christ who has risen from it. Jesus, you are the greatest emperor. Jesus, you are the greatest general we could ever ask for. In the war against sin and death, you have brought us victory. And so, Lord, we stand in that victory. And we pray, God, take our sin from us, snap our sin patterns, and help us replace it with community and love and more of the gospel, more spiritual disciplines. God, we want it more. We want more of you rather than our sin. Lord, I pray for people as they sign off from here at the end of the service, as uh, the rest of us go from here, would this be at the front of our minds that sin patterns must be stopped now in the name of Jesus? And thankfully, God, we thank you that you are triumphant. And so we hail you, Jesus, triumphator. Thank you, Lord, for everything you've done pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to one final song called No Longer Slaves. <laughs> 